0: If I asked someone with an eating disorder to stay yeah. in front of their, mood, their food and just be present with what comes up, that would be like me asking you to sit in the middle of this room when the fire alarm was going off and the sprinklers
1: were coming down. Hello, you're listening to the Inside Out Institute podcast. My name is Steph Boulay, the host of the podcast, and this is our second episode. So Welcome. Inside Out is Australia's first national institute for research and clinical excellence into eating disorders. If you're keen to find out more about us, jump onto our website, insideoutinstitute.org.au. Okay, so in this episode, we're speaking to U.S. expert Dr. Stephanie Natzpek from the University of California about anxiety and eating disorders. You may not be aware, but there is a very strong link between the two. Studies indicate that at least two out of every three people with an eating disorder also meet diagnosis for an anxiety disorder. Now, anxiety is a completely normal and natural response to stress. If you're a human, you've experienced anxiety. But when the amount of anxiety that you feel becomes extreme and unmanageable, like it's out of proportion to the situation and it starts to interfere with your life, then it could be an anxiety disorder. It's a common story for people who develop an eating disorder. First came the anxiety, and then to try to alleviate and manage that anxiety comes the eating disorder... But to start off, we're going to hear from someone with lived experience, which is something that we do at the start of every episode. And today we're hearing from Sariah Green. Sariah had a tough journey with bulimia, which spanned throughout her teenage years. Nowadays, she's recovered and she's working as a provisional psychologist to help other people overcome eating disorders too.
2: Anyway, she's pretty incredible. Here she is. For a combination of reasons, I started to feel like I was unacceptable or how I looked was unacceptable. And then I think the big trigger was uh, my mother was diagnosed with cancer. She's doing well now, uh, which is great. But I think because I'd been brought up to really not ever, like, acknowledge my feelings, especially any negative feelings, um, I didn't really know what to do with that or how to process that. And at the same time, sort of noticing changes in my body and feeling like those changes weren't okay, I thought that if I could lose some weight, change the way that my body looked, then maybe I would feel better about things and my life in general, which of course um, wasn't the case, but that, that is kind of how it, uh, how it reels you in. So from that point, I started quite heavily restricting my intake. I was, yeah, basically starving myself, but then fell into this pattern of like, binge eating, and then um, purging to compensate. Um, It sort of continued to a point where I was uh, hospitalized due to some pretty major health complications from my eating disorder. And and that experience in the hospital was a really scary moment for me and a bit of a wake-up call for me. And at that point, I was there for a couple of weeks and started to learn how to feed my body normally again. Beyond that, some things that helped me moving forward were being honest and open about my feelings. Um, I think a lot of the time I try to push down emotions that I couldn't understand or couldn't tolerate really underlie my eating disorder. So learning how to manage those has been really helpful. One of the big things that I, I didn't recognized for a long time was anxiety. When I left the hospital and I started getting treatment for both my eating disorder and my anxiety, I learned a lot of anxiety management techniques, simple things like learning how to breathe through things and recognize when it comes into your body and know that it's not gonna stay there forever and you can ride that wave until it comes down. So it was really the post-meal anxiety that was really hard to tolerate. I guess like all the voices that get into your head around like, like you've you've done the wrong thing, you've eaten too much, you're a failure. All those kinds of thoughts that come in were just really brutal. And physically I would feel it as well in my chest and in my stomach and um, learning how to separate those feelings from feeling full was quite helpful. One thing that really helped me is finding things to distract yourself anything that you can do that will make you sit with that feeling until it subsides, because it will subside. And so a lot of things that I did were really simple, like, straight after dinner, I'll watch a movie with my sister, or, like, I'll do something for this, like, 30-minute to one-hour period after the meal where I know I'm going to feel really anxious. The life that I have now um, is so much more Full than it was before. I feel so much better in myself and so much better in my relationships with other people than I did when I was unwell.
1: You're listening to the Inside Out Institute podcast, rethinking eating disorders from the inside out. Our guest today is Dr. Stephanie Natzpeck, a clinical psychologist, researcher and program director at the University of California, San Diego. She specialised in anxiety and stress management before she transitioned to eating disorders, so she's the perfect person to talk to about this, frankly, massive topic.
0: One would be remiss to talk about eating disorders without mentioning anxiety. They are such a fundamental um, problem. About two-thirds of people diagnosed with an eating disorder have had a lifetime diagnosis of an anxiety disorder. So that's about, you know, that's a large percentage of people who have, that struggle with both anxiety and an eating that's disorder. It's huge. Huge. So Why? Yeah. So that's that's really the $100 question. <laughs> and really what it is is that it, we, it appears that people with eating disorders and anxiety disorders might have shared vulnerabilities. When we think about eating disorders and why they develop is we have really, really strong evidence to suggest that these are biological-based illnesses. But we do know that there is a genetic a heritability factor in eating disorders and that there are biological predispositions that sort of predispose someone to developing an eating disorder and what we found is that those are actually expressed as personality and temperament traits right so yes yeah so all of us are born with a specific personality and the personality and temperament traits that we see happen in eating disorders are ones that overlap with anxiety so those are things like having what we call like anxious trait so it doesn't mean you necessarily have an anxiety disorder, but someone who tends to be sort of wired to be a bit more of a worrier.
1: Yes, right. So it's not
0: like interfering particularly with your life, but... Exactly. You're a stress head. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that would be like the easy way to put it. Okay. So, we call that an anxious trait. And it just means that these are people who might tend to be a little bit, worry a little bit more than the mm-hmm. average. And those are not yep. necessarily bad things. In fact, those might be good things. High obsessionality is another personality trait that might predispose someone to both an eating disorder and specific anxiety disorders. Okay. And what that means is that people who tend to be really focused on the details, who are really able to pick out what might be wrong, whereas most of us see, like, all the things that are going well or something looks
1: fine, like, these are the highly perfectionistic people too. Right. And so once the eating disorder onsets, do you find that the anxiety just multiplies or increases?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a um, double whammy because there might mm. be – you know, these anxious traits that predispose someone to developing an eating disorder. Once you develop an eating disorder, and perhaps, let's say, you're restricting your food, your body weight decreases, there's a whole bunch of things that happen physically, right, that mm. might actually make anxiety worse. And it's almost like these personality traits or these characteristics get exaggerated through semi-starvation or starvation. So we people see people who sort of struggle with just feeling consumed all the time with overthinking They -hmm. can't get their mind off of things. They feel really
1: stuck. They feel really, really anxious, obviously, around food. Yeah, does it get kind of focused or hone in on food and body and that sort of thing?
0: Yeah, so I think that if you ask someone with an eating disorder, they would say in the midst of their eating disorder that a lot of their anxiety uh, revolves around fear of weight gain, uh, shape, weight concerns, eating concerns. Um, And that's, I would say, generally speaking.
1: So if somebody was highly anxious or if you address that straight off do you think you would prevent the onset of an eating disorder oh my gosh
0: I I think that like you might have seen my eyes lit up because it's such a good question (laughs) and one of the things that our field hasn't done well is when we look at mental health or mental illnesses historically we haven't like other if you take medicine in general right um People, there's all these sort of technologies that we can use to look at what is the cause of, let's say, someone having a blood disorder or having a specific cancer. Yeah. Whereas in psychiatry, all we've been able to do has been to look at or have people report their symptoms and look at what's happening from the outside and say, oh, this is what's happening. But we don't really know what's driving those things. Yes. So over the past 10 or 20 years with the advent of um, brain imaging technologies, we've really kind of our better understanding, like, what's happening inside of the brain that's causing someone to feel anxious or engage in these And what is behaviors, it? Yeah, and so anxiety is another fundamental mechanism that happens, and so back to your question is, like, it's a great question, which is, what if we can treat not just the symptoms of an eating disorder, mm-hmm. but actually the causes, right? The causes of why people are not able to take in the right amount of food, or they, food somehow causes anxiety. What we're saying is, we understand that eating causes anxiety, In fact, there's evidence to suggest, strong evidence to suggest that when people, whereas most of us after we eat, dopamine is released and that's like the Mm feel-good neurotransmitter. With the endogenous dopamine release, so that natural dopamine release that you get after eating, people with eating disorders experience that as anxiogenic. That causes anxiety. So, again, we know that eating causes anxiety. We know that people have a lot of anticipatory anxiety before eating. Mm -hmm. So instead of just focusing on, like, how to get the right amount of food, maybe we need to help them better – Kind of find a better treatment strategies and tools to manage the anxiety before during and after meals and maybe that's a better way to treat people and in your experience what sort of strategies are the best There's a few things one of the premises of um, we're talking a lot about personality traits right and what we know is that personality traits are stable over time so if you're someone who has been told your entire life is sort of like go with the flow or you know like high like tightly wired we don't really think nor in like to this day and age we don't have any treatments that have been proven proven to change core personality features so they're there you're stuck with them kind of and actually being stuck with being perfectionistic a little bit obsessive, maybe highly anxious, we don't see that as a bad thing. We know that people who recover from eating disorders go on to be quite successful.
1: And so uh, back to what you were asking is, so how do you treat that? That's so incredible because they're so, I guess, stigmatized perfectionism, anxiety, it's so good to hear you say, actually, these are really powerful traits that you have. These are strengths, I would say. L- these are strengths. These are strengths. And that's what we're trying to teach people in treatment let's is that it. Yeah. let's
0: use it. Yeah. And as opposed to you channeling these traits towards food, let's channel them in different directions. So if you can be maybe a little bit perfectionistic and obsessive around your schoolwork, Maybe that's a good thing. I mean, I don't know anyone who, you know, I work around a lot of academics and researchers, and the director of our clinic, Dr. Walter Kay, will say... I'm obsessive, and I don't think I would have ever been successful in research if I didn't have that trait, right? Yeah, okay. So these are traits, once again, that predict success, and we want people to know that we that we highly value these things and that we're not trying to change them. In fact, even if we were trying, we probably couldn't. Once again, these are stable over yep. the lifetime. So back to your question about how do we help people manage that, right? Yes. So we're not trying to say you need to reduce your anxiety. And, in fact, I, you know, it's kind of interesting when people say just feel less anxious or like a psychologist oh. will say <laughs> – well, just be happy
1: just yeah. be happy right. right or chill out that's obviously the sad. worst one don't be chill sad chill out oh <laughs> man that would trigger a reaction it? right <laughs> just
0: calm down but even us psychologists who sort of feel like we can find these sophisticated ways to help people quote unquote manage their anxiety yeah. there are certainly tools that we can help people manage their anxiety but if you understand what anxiety is biologically and evolutionarily anxiety by nature is designed to get our attention so you know ba- way back evolutionarily when we were cavemen we needed uh-huh. to have this response and our brain routed to worrying about something in order to escape danger yeah, and or stay else alive would be eaten by a bear exactly and so it's a little bit funny to sort of go around saying that we can just tell people not to be anxious, right? What we can do is help people reattune or reattend to different things. So one of our primary strategies for managing anxiety is helping people learn that, you know, anxiety happens in a certain part of the brain. It's like the front part of the brain, which Mm -hmm. is in particular in eating disorders. There's a, I don't want to say a certain type of anxiety, but there's, when we think of anxiety, it's, it's a pretty big concept. And sort of the type of anxiety that we see predominantly in people with eating disorders is this worrying about future consequences, sort of being stuck in future thinking, which is pretty common in anxiety in general. And that happens in the front part of our brain, right? And so if we can get people to sort of do something with their hands and more active and let's say participate in a game during meals or talk to their loved ones about um, activities, play a game, right, at the Mm -hmm. table, actually what we're doing, it seems simple, but what we're doing is we're actually reattuning energy from this part of your brain, which is, you know,
1: responsible for generating that type of anxiety to a different part of the brain. It's so, that seems so opposite to what everyone's saying, like mindful eating, like eat in the present, look at your food, blah, 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 blah. But I guess for eating disorders, especially people who have eating disorders and anxiety, it's a, it's a different message, isn't it? I different mean, approach. again,
0: you just like hit the nail on the head. And, you know, if we're really looking at the literature and what we understand to be true from a brain perspective around the way anxiety works and functions and the mechanism that causes eating disorder behaviors, if I asked someone with an eating disorder to stay yeah. in front of their, mo- their food and just be present with what comes up, that would be like me ask you to sit in the middle of this room when the fire alarm was going off and the sprinklers were coming down, and just be
1: just like be cool. Yeah, about the it. highest threat.
0: Right situation. And that might be a skill that one should develop later in life. But yeah, we're yeah, so do you approach
1: that later in therapy? Yes, we do. Okay,
0: but in the acute phases of illness, yes. where we're trying to get someone to eat their food, maintain a healthy body weight, stay alive stay alive we want to be using skills that will assist them and are most effective with getting through a meal mm-hmm. there was actually a really small study that was done where they looked at you those two strategies do you can you use distract before a meal or do you okay. use mindfulness before a meal yes. and what helps people consume more calories and they
1: found that distraction techniques ended up helping Wonderful. people consume more calories okay so just put your netflix on that's right so what about people with binge eating mm. uh problems good point yeah what, what sort of technique can you use for that? Yeah,
0: so, you know, again, I should have said that when I'm talking about these underlying mechanisms, I was really mostly focused on speaking about anorexia, to yep. some extent bulimia, but binge eating, you know, the mechanisms that drive the disinhibited eating behavior are quite different in binge eating. There are definitely similarities in personality traits that predispose someone. But in binge eating, there is a focus on sort of mindful eating and mm-hmm. um, being more present and attuned to what you're doing because so much of what happens in binge eating is that people are dissociating. They're totally out of their experience okay. of what's happening. In Which the is area. that
1: feeling of being out of control.
0: Yes, exactly. Okay. Yep, exactly. And, you know, I always like to ask people because there is definitely, we know no averages based on the research, right? But I think there's a lot of individual variability. So it's common for me, for someone with an eating disorder to ask them, where is your anxiety highest? And I might even them sort of have them track it. Like, is it before meals? Are you doing, are you having a lot of anticipatory anxiety about mm-hmm. what's going to happen, how this is going to affect you, what the food is going to be? Is it during the meal that it's really hard for you to get through it? Because for whatever reason, maybe the sensations that you're experiencing? Or is it after, that your distress is so high because of what you did? So if they feel very distressed after a meal, that really lends itself to think about what can we do to help you manage your distress? Because, you know, after the meals, most a lot of supports will just kind of exit the room and move on with the day. And it might be that a lot of support is needed Mm. in those times. And it might be that a lot of distractions are needed after that time. So I'm big on helping... um, Clients and support people come up with sort of a post meal or a pre meal routine for what they can do. Um, And that's sort of drawing from a lot of different concepts that might help. So, for one thing, distraction, once again, right? Thinking about something else, engaging motor circuits, right? That might help drive away energy from the part of your brain that's associated with worrying. So, it might just be taking a walk you know um doing some knitting or crocheting working on a project using one of those adult coloring books the other thing i really like to capitalize on is uh, building habits for automaticity so what i mean by that is that you know, I want people to do almost exactly, have almost exactly the same routine that they're following for anxiety. Okay. Because the more that we've practiced something, the more that our brain is not needing to use effortful attention to, to to use that routine. And essentially it gets coded as habit, right? And habit is associated with automaticity, which is anxiety reducing by definition. So I always like to tell people, and I tell this to my clients: if you've ever seen professional athletes, they have strong routines that they're doing before professional meets or okay, yeah. professional competitions. And we're kind of trying to use that same technique in um,
1: people with eating disorders. What if the anxiety is just too overwhelming, and you just can't get focused off the meal that you've just eaten? I think that's huge, and
0: I, I would, I would, I do not want to sit here and say. This will always work because if you're, you know, on a scale of one to 10, 10 being the highest anxiety, yeah, ten, it is very hard to intervene at a ten. Really hard to intervene. So a lot of what we're focused on doing is setting these strategies up so that people are avoiding getting to a ten. Okay. Because the truth of the matter is, is I don't want to sit here and feel so disconnected and say, oh well, you know, just distract if yeah, you're at a ten. The reality is that. It's really hard to it's do really hard. and I think that it's important to say that because that alone is validating, right yeah if someone is at a 10 at a 10 and I'm saying, just use this distractor. I don't understand why you're so anxious, that's something that we want to do is we want to be validating. We want to understand what this experience is like for someone with an eating disorder mm-hmm.
1: and that alone might actually help too. so right. And when someone's already overwhelmed, if you invalidate them and tell them their feelings are wrong somehow, not only are they coping with the original anxiety, but now there's another layer of anxiety that they somehow have to deal with.
0: The other thing I'll just to add to that is mm-hmm. if you are if you know that eating always causes you to feel worse, then you're going to remember that, and before you eat a meal, you're going to feel anxious, right? So that's where that anticipatory anxiety comes in too. Uh-huh. Um, so. That might be the same for people with bulimia. Actually, my dissertation project, which I did a long time ago, did the very thing that I suggested, which was I had people track emotional experiences before binging, during binging, Mm -hmm. after binging, before purging, after purging. Um, And what I found and what the literature suggests is that Purging has an anxiety-reducing quality around it, so people feel less anxious after um, engaging Mm -hmm. in these types of behaviors often, which is a problem because if you're in treatment and I'm pulling away the behavior, purging, which is making you feel better, then you're going to feel anxious, right? Yes. So, um, again, always worth checking individual by individual, but generally speaking, the pattern that we see happen is that people will feel nothing while they're binge eating because they're totally dissociated. Mm -hmm. There's that process of what we call narrowing that happens where there's cognitive narrowing where they're thinking about nothing. People will talk about just sort of not even being aware of what was going on. Mm -hmm. Then they feel really anxious after binging. And that's why purging... That's why they utilize purging. Right. So if we're pulling that away, it's kind of the same pattern where they're feeling anxious and we need to give them a replacement behavior and not just expect that they're going to be
1: able to manage that. Okay. Yeah. So the same sort of behaviors that you mentioned before?
0: Yep. Same sort of thing would be sort of uh, really necessary and called for.
1: And I guess the thing that's probably difficult for a lot of people is that you appear to be recovering, Mm. but the experience of anxiety because of the, all the mechanisms, you know, coping mechanisms are being taken away, is just, you know, out of control. Yes. But everyone's like, oh, you're doing so well, you're fine. Yes. And the internal feeling is just so messy, isn't it? It's helpful when other
0: people understand it, so they're not blaming you or thinking it's easy or thinking this is just about control or something else. And I do this demo, which and we do that not just by talking. We have these activities that we set up where people can get these like real experiences of what it might feel like to have this anxiety. And what I show is if you're sitting in distress, let's say you have voices all around you telling you what you did was awful and you feel physically awful and your anxiety is high, and someone from the outside is like amazing job, you did great. Ugh. How is that going to feel? <laughs> yeah. Terrible. It's going to make you feel terrible. It's almost like mocking. Exactly. It's mocking. It's re- and it's also pejorative. Like it makes you feel like just like a dog. You know what I mean? People yeah. say mm, like don't say it. It makes me feel like a dog or yeah. Just and the carol,
1: you know, the person saying it's like just can't. It's so hard to understand.
0: It's hard to understand, yeah. and that's part of what we're trying to do is help people better understand what's happening. Because if you fundamentally, if you get what's going on. I can give you some suggestions about what might work, but if you really know what's happening inside the person, and I, I love Inside Out because it's this is really what, this is sort of our philosophy, is like we're trying to treat eating disorders from the inside out. Yes. And if people understand what's really going on inside that's driving this behavior, they will naturally and organically be able to help in better ways. Yes. Yeah.
1: Thanks for listening to the second episode of the Inside Out Institute podcast. Check out the show notes for links to some relevant resources and watch this space because we're planning to release a bonus episode on anxiety, where we delve more into some really fascinating new research. As always, we're really keen to hear what you think, so please do get in touch. And if there is something in particular that you'd like us to do a podcast about, let us know via our website, insideoutinstitute.org.au or message us on Facebook at Inside Out Institute. Catch you next time. If you or a loved one needs support, please head to our website or call the National Eating Disorders Helpline at Butterfly on 1-800-ED-HOPE or 1-800-33-4673.